Super Talk Mississippi media production. Find your new ride at Kia McCombs all-new location at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Come find out why McComb loves Kia McComb at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Right on the corner, right on the price. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Well Studio, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this Hump Day. We have made it to Hump Day, and it's only the second day we're working this week. <laughs> it's because yesterday was one of those Mondayest Tuesdays in a minute. <laughs> No doubt about that. But we are here ready to spring into action. We got Mayor Carolyn McAdams, the mayor of Greenwood, on the program today. At 1035, we're going to talk about the Greenwood LaFleur Hospital and get an update there. Major Johnny Paulus of the Mississippi Highway Patrol joins middays at 1205. Remember, he got reassigned. New duty, the 1034 Project, focusing on the health and wellness of law enforcement officers. And uh, this is a timely topic, given the tragic losses that the law enforcement community has experienced here of late. So we look forward to visiting with Major Johnny Paulus later on in the program uh, masks. Seriously. Maryland Public Elementary School reinstates COVID mask requirements. Ordering the kids to wear those stupid N95 masks on kids. I don't think there's yet a case where a child in this country has passed away from COVID. Not strictly COVID, no. Right. This is nuts. These people are control freaks. They're virtue signaling zealots. That's all this is. It's a print, the principal of this school in a Maryland uh, suburb. Reinstating the masks for 10 days. 10 days. Jeez, so ridiculous. School principal Rebecca Irwin Kennedy sent a letter to the parents and guardians, quote, to prevent further transmission in the classroom for 10 days. Additional N95 masks have been distributed 
and students and staff and identified classes or activities will be required to wear masks while in school, except while they're eating or drinking. What happens then? The COVID germs escape and you infect people? They'll become optional after the 10-day period. Right. Oh, my gosh. And they're also sending at-home test kits. They're sending things home with that. Oh, my gosh. This ensures that staff and students remain healthy for in-person learning, says the principal. Oh, gosh. Meanwhile, Joe Biden yesterday, he was awarding the Medal of Honor in a ceremony to a Vietnam-era war hero. Now, he got slammed by some of the nation's warriors, you know, people that have actually had bullets flying at their heads and so forth, unlike Joe Biden, who's just lived a fraudulent life his entire time on the planet. He's 80, of course. And the recipient, retired Captain Larry Taylor, 81. I read the story, by the way, of the reason he was uh, nominated and received the medal. It's, It's fascinating. His heroics, his innovation to rescue some of our troops pinned down, honestly, that to this day say those who are still with us say, yeah, were it not for his heroism, we would not have made it. Our chances of getting out were zero, one remarked. But while Captain Taylor shed a tear, understandably so, recalling the images of uh, the event, and, and, of course, just overcome with emotion, given that you're receiving the nation's highest military honor, the Medal of Honor. He shed a tear. Joe Biden appeared, like, uninterested, less moved, and was heading out the door before the closing benediction was read. This is... Disgraceful, honestly. And so many have reacted with a bit of fury at the commander-in-chief. He says, well, he was just trying to give the captain the spotlight. I say that's horse hockey. He don't know where the hell he is half the time. This, This is just inexcusable. I'm sorry. Let's be honest. Joe Biden couldn't hold this guy's jockstrap. No idea. And watching, I watched the video of the event, and the captain is incredible, obviously. Joe Biden, he's awful. He doesn't deserve to put this medal around this warrior's neck. And there's some photos that I saw also of him in his UH-1 Huey helicopter. That's what he did. was in the 1st Squadron, 4th Cavalry, 1st Infantry Division, Troop D. Man, over 2,000 combat missions 
in UH-1s and Cobra helicopters, and he led this rescue mission in 68 to save a small group of soldiers that were trapped behind enemy lines in a rice field. And he came up with uh, a plan and executed that plan to get them out. He did. And he is rightfully so, deservingly so, awarded the Medal of Honor. And Joe Biden just acted like he was just not even interested and then left before the benediction. I I can't comprehend it, honestly. I I wonder to some extent, and this is completely speculative on my part, are the Democrats trying to let this guy air or and commit these gaffes so as to maybe force him to reflect on them, these mishaps, and back out of the race, bow out of the race. I don't know. It's uh, it's a plausible theory, but that really bothered me. I have so much respect for these guys, and I'll admit, because this was going on when I was a child, and and it was much the talk, the Vietnam War was, during the middle 60s, when we were so heavily engaged, and it was on television every night. You couldn't help but see it. And we only had, you know, three 30-minute news broadcasts back in those days. But every day, of course, the war and reports of of KIA and MIA and just uh, other uh, progress and other events and news from the war blasted on the television every night. It's just incredible. Well, thank you, Captain Taylor, for your service, sir. A um, grateful nation extends its its gratitude for sure. Much deserved the Medal of Honor. I encourage you folks to read the stories. Too long to share here, but great detail about exactly what he did, how he came up with the idea, and why it succeeded, uh, all the while knowing that it, it could have failed, and in which case he and everybody would have lost their lives, all those he was trying to rescue. Really incredible. What else is going on, uh, Rhino, is that uh, the House Republicans are demanding some spending adjustments, shall we say, to government funding. In the meantime... The Senate over there is trying to ram something through under the leadership, and I use that term very loosely, of Chuck Schumer. We shall see where all that goes uh, for sure. By the way, a new study led by some Boston scientists says that the latest COVID-19 variant is much less of a threat than initially feared. You've seen that. But yet we're sticking in 95 masks on kids. You stupid liberals. Sick of it. We're coming right back with more in the Element Well Studio. Gerard Gibbert. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. 
Inside a Journey record jacket from the 1980s, Gerard Gibbert, Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's middays. We're in the Element Well studio. The mayor of Greenwood, Carolyn McAdams, uh, joins us in the next segment on middays on the C Spire text line. That's 601 879 4395. Morning, men. Oh, that's a, uh, yeah, take it easy on Biden. He heard the ice cream truck music and walked out. The priceless part was the hero's face when he walked out. Thank God for this soldier. He deserved better from the president. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, it's disgraceful, shameful. Heck, he wasn't being rude. He heard people clapping and thought it was over. Time to head back to the beach, says CC in Senatobia. Seems to be spending a lot of time on the beach there in Rehoboth, Delaware. Really, really terrible. If y'all ever get the chance to read the book Hell's Gate by Corporal Frazier, just amazing life story. I, I have heard that as well. I haven't read the book, but I've heard that. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, he urged House Republicans to back away from their demands on a stopgap government funding measure, work with Democrats to avoid a government shutdown at the end of the month. And... Uh, their demands, honestly, are fairly straightforward. Uh, one of those is is the top-line discretionary funding level being lowered to $1.47 trillion. That's below the $1.6 trillion set by pres- the president and the speaker earlier this year. It was $1.7 last year. And they also want some action on the border. They want um, the FBI and the, uh, to end uh, its seemingly endless weaponization and politicization of the law enforcement agency. And they also want to end the Pentagon's obsession with woke policies. They want all that in the spending deal. And... Senator Schumer wants nothing of it. He just wants them to go away and fall in line and take a hike and all that sort of stuff and just get on board here. This is how we end up with $32 trillion in debt. By the way, we're in the final fiscal month of the year, anxiously awaiting the deficit produced in the month of August. We have it through July. It's $1.6 trillion. I would expect at least another 300 maybe $350 billion coming in just under or around that $2 trillion mark that we predicted months ago. And, of course, that is up significantly from last year by some $600 billion. What it means is that this president is on track to produce 
a $6.2 trillion deficit for his first three years. Trump, under Trump, $5.6 trillion, so $600 billion more. And under Trump, that $5.6 trillion includes $3.1 in the COVID year of 2020. So more than half of the deficit produced under Trump occurred during 2020 as a result of two gigantic COVID spending measures. One of those you heard us talk about so many times on the program, the CARES Act, because a lot of money went to the states. And they were busy spending that CARES Act money. And all we did is rack up more debt as a result. So based on the current trend and projections for Joe Biden's final year, he will leave office having produced about $8.4 trillion in deficits. $8.4 trillion, an average of over $2 trillion a year. When Trump took office in his first year, not that it's anything to sneeze at, but $680 billion. And then you had 500, 700, so under a trillion, which is crazy to even talk about that in his first three years. And then the fourth year just blew the whole thing up because of the COVID stuff. And everybody, of course, like I said, got on board with that, including the Democrats. No issues. Yeah, 2017, 685, 2018, 779, 2019, 983. Those are billion-dollar figures, and then it just went through the roof in 2020 with the COVID at 3.1. And it's it, it's just, again, back to this concept we shared yesterday that this just rolls off everybody's back. Nobody seems to care. And right now they're focused on, we got to keep the government open we got to get this spending bill through, and, of course, the spending bill will be outrageous, and it will contribute once again to a huge deficit, add to the debt, and away we go once again. Same song, just add yet another verse to it. Meantime, on the markets, if you're interested, they're not looking very good today. Investors Still queasy about sticky inflation and some economic sluggishness. It is September that traditionally is not a great month for markets. I'm noticing that Apple is down today 3%, $5.80 a share. And uh, so there are lots of concerns, lots of nervousness out there in the investment world. This, of course, affects your 401ks and pensions and all the other uh, instruments and programs that rely on returns, including your own personal. But what do we get from the left? I'm seeing more posts about the wealth of certain individuals that they just have serious aversion to Elon Musk. He was worth only $2 billion in 2012. He's worth 248 today. All true. On paper. 
doesn't really equate to cash. Jeff Bezos, $18 billion in 2012, $160 billion. I say bravo. This is awesome. This is great. I, I, why is that a problem? I say that is a testament to the opportunity in this country. They produced enormous value for society. But what's the point? All they want to do is just take some of their money to do what with? Why does it even matter when you're running $2 trillion deficits? It's not like we don't have certain programs because we don't have enough money to fund them. We don't care about that. Of course, these people don't understand the difference between income and net worth. That's always a problem. And their solution is fix the system. I'm reading some of the comments. Fix the system. Tax the rich. Balance. And then, of course, tax the rich and do what? It's always the issue. Ah, they just don't get it. You know, we were talking about the Electoral College yesterday and this movement to award electoral votes based on the national popular vote. And there is an agreement uh, among certain states to elect the president by national popular vote once they get to a, a certain number, I think 205 electoral votes specifically. And there is a movement underway, uh, a big one, to do that. And should that ever happen, that would really be a problem to to elect uh, a Republican for president because we don't fare very well on in terms of the popular vote. Just big populated states are Democrat, and they vote Democrat. So that would be an issue. And I uh, hope that doesn't happen. Something else about Joe Biden's economic plan. You know, 60% of our economy is small business. And I started thinking, Rhino, about the bills passed under his watch, like the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act. There's really nothing in there for small businesses. In fact, it's just the opposite. These these are just, they always complain about Trump. His tax cuts refer his rich buddies. Well, both of those measures, which have been enacted into law, essentially pad the pockets of large companies. There's nothing in there for small businesses. It doesn't help them. They're not in the chip manufacturing business, for example, and all these goofy energy credits. Those are for big businesses, Fortune-type S&P 500 companies, not small businesses. They get the shaft from Joe Biden, if you really think about it. We're stepping aside for a break. It's Mayor Carolyn McAdams of Greenwood next. Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert, Middays with Gerard, Super Talk, Mississippi.
Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays, live from the Element Wealth Studio. We welcome to the program now the mayor of Greenwood, Mississippi, Mayor Carolyn McAdams. Good to talk to you again, Mayor. How are you? Good morning, Gerard. It's great to be here again and talk to y'all. I'm so appreciative that you're still interested in the progress of our hospital. Yes, indeed. So uh, give us an update on, on where you are. I know some action has been taken since the last time you and I spoke about uh, the hospital. What's the current status? Well, the current status is if we're still waiting on the critical access destination, uh, it has been handed over now to the Center for Medicaid and uh, Medicare Services, and I don't know when that decision will be made. Um, hopefully, it will be made before the end of the year, but I'm being told it could be it could be in January, so I'm not sure. So we're still hanging on. The hospital board and the administrators every possible avenue uh, to keep this hospital doors open and provide services. And, you know, I think a lot of people think that we're not providing any services, but actually we're providing still a good many services at Greenwood Little Hospital. We still have ER, we have OR, we have inpatient, outpatient, cancer care, the wound care, general and vascular surgery, orthopedic surgery, podiatry clinic, the neurologist clinic, cardiology clinic, and the Edabena clinic, which is eight miles away from Greenwood, has the aftercare service. So there's still services being provided there. Um, Like I said, we're still hanging on by a thread financially, but the county and the city going in together, uh, receiving or getting the... uh, the line of credit for $10 million, that has been something that at least can ease the mind for the next several months that they have money to pay payroll. And are we making money? The Greenwood Floor Hospital still is in the black. Uh, even though we offered these services, uh, it's still in the black and we're, and we've cut a lot of services. We've cut a lot of employment there. We've done everything that we can do to to provide services to the to the citizens, but make it more financially uh, secure. So we've we've done everything we can do. So hopefully, hopefully uh, we will get the critical access. But the county and the city decided that since we don't want all of our eggs in one basket, so to speak, we did reach out and do an RFP, and that has gone out. Uh, it will it will it was in the paper I think like last week. And it'll be in the paper for an additional two more times. And so hopefully somebody might reach out. I don't know. Uh, we, we're working with, uh, UMC, uh, right now with tele, telehealth care. So maybe that would be a good avenue for people to, to be able to, uh, pull up on their television and see the doctor or, or whatever their concerns are there. We're also working with Jackson Heart to help us with the cardiology services. So, the hospital board and the administration has has done their due diligence. They've gone out there and seeking all these possibilities for the Greenwood Four Hospital. So what's now, the, what's the RFP? Excuse me, Mayor. What's the RFP for exactly? What are you requesting? What services? Well, it's a uh, it's to to see if someone is interested in buying or leasing okay. the Greenwood Four Hospital. Okay. Just like when UMMC uh, did yeah. the RFP. Okay. Uh, yeah, and of course they they passed. They they elected not to acquire the hospital. So you you're seeking a yeah. potential buyer, and and you're, you're again okay. 
and you're um, you're conducting that through an RFP uh, request for proposal. Yes, correct. Session. Okay, all right. Request for proposal. All right. So, uh, ex- so explain I mean, to our audience. So, uh, converting to, uh, to converting the the category of care for Greenwood LaFleur Hospital means higher reimbursement rates from uh, Medicare and Medicaid. Correct. Correct. Yeah, and that so that's why you're With seeking that critical access. Yeah. Yes, and that's why that would really uh, that would really help us tremendously. I'm not saying that it's going to solve the problem completely, but it would certainly go a long way in solving the financial issues at the Greenwood Four Hospital for believe, sure. Yeah, I believe you've also noted that just overall low reimbursements re- reimbursement rates, even from private insurance. Uh, for those patients that uh, whose services are reimbursed by private carriers, that that's been a problem as well to the hospital. Um, is that correct? Correct. Yeah. That is correct. And a lot of people that can afford to go outside the city of Greenwood has been doing so. And I think a large part of that is because they don't realize the services, even though uh, – even though we've told the community that we still provide services at Greenwood Floor Hospital, I think a lot of people, I don't know why, just the priests and, you know, okay. just thinking that, hey, they're not out there, they're not providing the care that's needed. So a lot of people are going outside of Greenwood Floor to get health care, and right. that's hurting too. So, so we need people to support the Greenwood Floor Hospital. Gotcha. But you have you've also uh, eliminated some categories of service as well. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Which are which are those? Like OBGYN, I think is that true? OBGYN, absolutely, and that's a biggie, especially in the Mississippi Delta. Yeah. uh, For because we do have a lot of birthing of babies, and so you know that was a big thing. Now, of course, they can go to Grenada and Jackson and uh, Greenville. But uh, have, not in Greenwood. Have there been any staff reductions or any other expense uh, reductions that? Oh, you know, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely, they've had to close some of the facility down because there was two hundred. I think it was around two hundred and twenty beds in the Greenwood Four Hospital, and now that's been reduced greatly. Okay. So. That being said, that was a large, uh, you know, reduction in utilities and uh, maintenance and uh, janitorial services. And then some of those people, unfortunately, were let go from the Greenwood Four Hospital. It is about maybe uh, 50% of the staff uh, remaining there because in order to be, you know, offer uh, emergency surgery, I mean, emergency uh, room, mm-hmm. you have to have so many doctors and nurses available for that because you've got, it goes it's it's around the clock, so you have to have doctors and nurses on duty. Yeah. Whether you have one patient or fifty patients. Right. What about some back office staff? Has there been any opportunity to to shrink those ranks as well? Correct, and they are also even renting some of the facility to some other doctors in okay. some other clinics to produce uh, revenue. That has been a that's been. Right. And they're also, I got a note this morning that they were also restructuring the hospitalist service with potential for some ICU beds. So okay. that's, that hasn't happened yet. But like I said, swing bed, revenue opportunity, they're, they're dealing with that. So they're, they're pursuing what they can pursue, uh, with the, to keep the revenue and the services, uh, for the citizens. 
Absolutely. I know, I know Medicaid expansion, you, you have, uh, last time you and I talked, you, you mentioned the, uh, the, the high amount of uninsured services provided by the hospital, just un, unreimbursed. You get some assistance from the federal government, what they call disproportionate share payments that offset some of that, but it's certainly not equivalent to if you were to be fully reimbursed by Medicaid, Medicare, or private insurance. Has anybody done an analysis? I know I may have asked you this the last time that says, okay, if Medicaid were expanded, this is what our financial picture would look like um, historically. If we just took a year, the, the past fiscal year, and said right. this is the way it would look had Medicaid expansion been in place. Is, is that exercise ever been done? Well, I don't know if they've given us numbers to that effect. I'm sure that the hospital administrators have those numbers. Yeah. But I'd, I've never seen those. But I know we talked about it in all of our meetings. Nobody's given a specific number. But they've just said that, you know, we've lost so much money by not receiving yeah. the uh, Medicaid expansion. And what it would, they just said that, like I said before, even the critical access would not fix the entire problem, but it would certainly go a long way. Well, so would the expansion of Medicare. Yeah, Medicaid. Medicaid. Yeah, so I, I believe you're on record, yeah. as are others, as saying, yeah, this, this isn't a single solution that would resolve this uh, this financial problem, but it would provide some assistance, especially if you've got a large number of patients as part of the patient census who would qualify and you would be reimbursed on that basis. Absolutely. And, you know, we wouldn't be really in this critical of a situation if we had had some Medicaid help. Okay. I mean, we really would not. But not saying that we would be out and yeah. be in the black, but yeah. I'm just saying it would it would have gone a long way. Gotcha. And, you know, now we're cities are just being challenged every way you look for different fundings, just like with PERS all of a sudden. Yep. You know, the cities are now going to be challenged with that, and that is a huge challenge, yep. uh, Gerard. We had uh, we're have Mayor to Barker on yesterday. The world. We're out of time, yes. Mayor, but really uh, appreciate I, you coming on and talking okay. about this. We'll talk some more. Thank, Thank you, you, ma'am. Thank you so much. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you Yes, ma'am. Thank we're, you so much. We're have coming a great right day. back. We're coming right back. Stay with us. with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. We are back in the Element Well studio. So, uh, had a little problems there with the electronics, with the connection, the communications. Apologize for that. But uh, for what it's worth, uh, I think you're going to see this issue of the state of uh, financial status of the healthcare industry 
in the state of Mississippi be an issue in the election for governor. Now, Brandon Presley's running around saying that the solution is expanding Medicaid and really doesn't offer a whole lot other than that. One uh, one other proposal was to appoint someone to run Medicaid who is a physician, which that doesn't solve the problem either. That's that's really a farce, honestly, and, and in my view, disingenuous to even make that that statement. That's not that's not going to make money rain from heaven to cover the large amount of uninsured care provided in the state and in under reimbursed care as well. And while I know a lot of folks focus on the uh, the rural hospitals and especially those which are operated. Uh, by counties, by government, such as Greenwood, LaFleur. And that's certainly a legitimate concern, no doubt about it. What in the heck does government know about running a hospital? I get it. But it's fair to point out that private-run hospitals, they're bleeding as well. They're struggling as well. And... I'm I'm shocked when I research the financial condition and the financial statements at hospitals you would think would be producing uh, uh, at least a positive cash flow, whether they're not-for-profit or for-profit, private or not. It's shocking when you look at how poorly that industry performs and KPMG the uh, one of the big four accounting firms, I, they, they're very heavily involved in providing professional accounting services to the healthcare. I mean, all of them are, but they are in particular to the healthcare industry. And I read a report that uh, indicated seventy-five percent of the community hospitals in this country are cash flow negative. So it's not anything unique to Mississippi. In Mississippi's rural hospitals, we we certainly are the poorest of states, and our private insurers reimburse a good bit lower than, say, neighboring Louisiana and Alabama does. Um, but uh, just it's a kind of a toxic elixir if you look at it. We have an unhealthy population. We don't do a very good job of seeking uh, wellness care which is critical to avoiding more expensive health problems down the road. We have a dispersed population. We're not, a lot of our, our residents are not close to some of the specialty care, and therefore they don't get it. We've got a huge component of our population, highest in the country, uninsured, which means they still get care, they just don't pay for it. Uh, and we're just poor on top of that. So you add all that up, and it puts enormous pressure uh, on the industry. It's one of the industries that maybe the only that's going to provide services whether they get paid or not. And that's a, that's a problem. Now, you could argue that, okay, and, and this is why I asked the question. I, I, I'm serious about this. 
I don't believe Medicaid expansion would fix Greenwood LaFleur. Not even it, close. No. Is a dollar better than zero? Sure. But if you've got, a say, a car dealership and you're losing your shirt, are you really going to be saved if you start selling every single car you got on the lot for 20 bucks? No. But that's essentially the reimbursement you're getting for Medicaid. That, that's right. But the question is, here's, here's the question that's difficult to answer, is that if it's the same number of cars that you're giving away for zero and now you're selling them for 20 and it's the same number of cars, you're better off in the latter. But if it's now more cars <laughs> that you're getting 20 bucks for, when do those lines cross relative to the fewer cars at zero? More cars at 20 versus, which is still upside down, you're still losing money, right? But in the case of the zero, you're writing every dime of it off. In the case of the $20 reimbursement, you're writing off some of it. So, and that's why I asked that question. That's specifically why, precisely why I asked the mayor that question. And I don't expect her to know it, but I sure would like for some folks that she's, like she says, internal to provide us that analysis. That would be instructive. We're coming right back after Fox News and Super Talk News. Stay with us. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply, to think deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. in the Element Well studio. So Thomas and Greenwood just thinks you just cut that man cost and everything will be hunky-dory. So I question for you, Thomas. You're in business and you're selling a product or service and the price of it is zero. You get nothing for it. Zero. How much admin cost do you have to cut to produce a profit? Serious question. And define admin costs. But more importantly, and this is, I, I, uh, I got a text from a legislator as well. No, I'm not saying it's not top-heavy. I'm not an expert on running a hospital like you are, Thomas. You're an expert, evidently, because produce me an org chart. Show me what it ought to look like. I don't know. I admit, I'm not an expert on the organizational structure of a hospital. I'm just not. So I can't tell you. I can tell you what other hospitals look like. I could look. I have done that, by the way. I've analyzed Greenwood LaFleur relative to other hospitals, and they're in line in that respect. Uh, I'm looking at Gulfport Memorial. I just got a text from a legislator on the coast and says, yeah, these county-run facilities are inefficient. I'm not doubting that. I don't doubt that. But private ones are, too, evidently, because they're all losing money. So it's it's not like there's an outlier. Oh, that one's just poorly run. That's a problem. Well, it, 
is Gulfport Memorial? Serious question. I just got curious, honestly, is all I did because I got this text from a legislator, and I, all, all due respect to that individual. Um, I started thinking, oh, I agree. Yeah, it's, it is a question. Should the county governments be in the hospital business? And this is legacy left over. But, and I'm not picking on Gulfport Memorial. I just happened to pick that one up because I know it's it's a close, uh, in from a regional perspective. It lost sixty three million last year, sixty three million. And here's what really surprised me, Rhino, when I looked at the breakdown of uh, their revenue stream which is just who pays you, where you're getting paid. A little different in this industry, as you know, because if if you're in the private sector, you got basically, in general, and I, I'm, I'm generalizing here, sort of one price for your product services. You may discount it here and there. You may even charge a little more here and there. But but it's different in the healthcare industry because you got private insurers, got Medicare, got Medicaid, got self pay. Those are generally the categories. And they all pay a different price for the exact same stuff. You know that, Rhino, from being in the pharmacy business. You're getting paid by Medicaid, by Medicare, and then within the commercial world, which one? Because they have cut different deals. Often. So Blue Cross pays this much, United Health pays this much, Cigna pays this much. You've seen that. It's oh, yeah. it's crazy how that how that world works. But here's what shocked me back to Gulfport Memorial. And I'm not picking on them. I just picked them randomly and said, I'm just gonna go pull up their financial statements. Their their packages, by the way, seventy five pages. And while we were on the break, I was perusing it. Eight point five percent of their care. It's Medicaid. That's not a lot. 8.5. 8.5. Here's what's killing them. 50% Medicare. And you know Medicare, in general, reimburses under cost. Thus, the $63 million loss. $63 million. Guarantee in 2022 it'll be higher once those are produced. Their financial statements. Now, so how are they hanging on? They've got an accumulated net position, which they've got equity, and they're just hanging on to that and using that to to offset. By the way, this is crazy. Provision for bad debts on their income statement? $128 million. On total sales, total revenue of $817. That is absurd. Absurd. That's free service. That's my point. You take that out of the equation, and they're okay. No amount of efficiency can offset free. It's not like, well, let's just make a change here and let this person go and change over there and shut that down. That's not going to fix free. I challenge anybody out there to provide me a financial statement that shows a profit when revenue is zero. I'm waiting for you, Thomas. Go ahead and send me that one. So, $817 million of revenue after bad debt, 
and they lost $63 million. So they're running a 10% net loss. And they're not unlike lots of other healthcare institutions across this country. The only ones that are in the black, honestly, and producing net positive cash flow is when they have a large component of care reimbursed by private insurance where they've cut a deal with the private insurer that covers their costs and allows them to render some positive cash flow out of that. If they have a high amount of their services being provided through Medicare or Medicaid, they're upside down, guaranteed. And that's even with the federal government sending you money because you're taking care of people. I'm not talking about the insurance reimbursement, this disproportionate share payment model that's been around a long time. A lot of people may not realize that. So even Greenwood LaFleur, they get money from the federal government, as do every other hospital in the state, because uh, when they have a situation where an outsized amount, I don't remember all the, the metrics and the criteria, but if an outsized amount of your care is being provided through Medicaid, Medicare, or uninsured, they send you some money to offset that. It's called disproportionate share payments. And so one of the things that has to be considered, honestly, in in the uh, discussion of Medicaid expansion is that you would see a reduction of disproportionate share payments into these institutions if they got reimbursed by Medicaid as opposed to getting zero for certain services. So... um, yeah, it's just a it's a big problem that uh, I I don't know that there is that there's not a single solution and, um, and and it's something that needs it needs attention for sure. I think it needs a lot of smart people again assembled on a blue ribbon committee, if you will. To uh, just to discuss and make some recommendations and come up with something, come up with a plan. Because right now, there's just there's not one, and I'm not even sure to what extent government ought to be involved in that. About all government could do, state government I'm talking about is is uh, make some changes in the Medicaid program, including expansion. They've got some other latitude as well. Uh, but uh, that's about it, honestly. Beyond that, I mean, it's, it's, they can't control Medicare. And we just discussed a lot of care nationwide. A lot of the, lot of the expense associated with health care nationwide occurs when one's in their elderly period of life, and they're covered by Medicare. That's why Medicare's going broke, big time going broke. Already announced, 2028, five years from now, Medicare, the Medicare Trust Fund report states, by 2028, without changes, we cannot pay Part A. That means zero for Medicare <laughs> to the hospitals. Can't pay fully. 
Part A. Nobody's talking about it. And it ain't going away. Five years. Just five years. Unbelievable. We're stepping aside for a break. Coming right back in the Element Well studio. Tickets to give away later. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well studio. Most people know who the Cleveland Clinic is. Pretty famous. Uh, highly respected clinical operation. Uh, I think they've got locations across the country. Do they not? Um, it's uh, got lots of uh, different physical facilities across the country. Around the world. Okay, around the world. Like just on this list, it's got Cleveland, Ohio, Western Florida, Toronto, Ontario, Abu Dhabi. Wow. In the United Arab Emirates and London. Wow, okay. Well, they lost $1.2 billion last year. $1.2 billion. And that's with, like, hardly any Medicaid. $1.2 billion. A lot of Medicare. Mayo Clinic did okay. Almost all private reimbursement or out-of-pocket. Hardly any Medicare or Medicaid. Um, it's just a tough business model, uh, the fact is, and it's... It's just unique in, in that you've got these multiple prices for everything and that you sell, essentially all the services that you sell. I, I still maintain we keep inventing more care, new care, which is a good thing in terms of health outcomes and quality of life and, and life span, but it costs money. Uh, there is a new treatment that is uh, a breakthrough, honestly, to fight sickle cell anemia. Affects, I'm not sure, Rhino, is it exclusively black people or predominantly? Can a, can a white person contract sickle cell anemia? I want to say it's a possibility, but it's exceedingly rare. Okay. But in general, it's a problem in the black community. It has been as long as I can remember. I mean, I, I went to school with some kids. I know that were affected by it. Um, but there's a new treatment. Good news. Breakthrough. It's two and a half million bucks. 
one-time treatment. I can't find any information. By the way, I learned about this from some physi- from some physicians. They were just recently the folks who came up with this therapy presenting to CMS because they're trying to get it covered by Medicare and Medicaid. CMS, the federal agency that would make that call. Now, what I can't find is information about, okay, well, how much future expense of health care would be avoided if this cure were administered or this treatment were administered. I can't find that. So you'd have to net that, right, in order to do an accurate analysis of what this means. But the bottom line is, think about this, folks. I haven't seen the demographics on Medicaid in Mississippi. I'm not talking about Medicaid expansion. just talking about the 800,000 on Medicaid, of which 400,000 are children, by the way, under the Medicaid or CHIPS program. And then you've got a large component who are um, indigent elderly. And then you've got blind and disabled and then pregnant women. Those are the coverage groups. So I, I don't know how that breaks down by race. I haven't researched that. But given the fact that our state is roughly 40% African-American, I suspect that it probably closely corresponds with that. Might even be higher, just given the income, um, the household incomes in the state, lower for black folks. It's probably more on, on Medicaid, honestly. Well, point is, let's say the CMS says, yeah, we'll cover that. We're going to add that for Medicare and Medicaid. Well, that means the federal government would cover its share of that here in the state of Mississippi and the other states, but the states would be responsible for their share in Mississippi because we are the poorest state in the country. We get the highest Medicaid match. And it varies from year to year, but it's 72, roughly, 73%. From the federal government, we pick up the other 27, 28%. That costs the state a billion dollars a year. Federal government sends almost $6 billion for the Medicaid program into the state. But my only point is, again, this is great. We invented a new therapy, new treatment. If this improves the quality of life, and I don't know, folks, if you've ever witnessed a person that experiences, I guess you'd call it a, an attack, rhino, a spell, what, whatever, sickle cell anemia. I, I've seen it um, when I was a kid, just to classmates. But a couple of years ago, about four years ago, my wife experienced kidney stones, and it put her in serious pain. I know folks out there have had that. I'm fortunate, knock on wood, never had it. She did, and so man, I had to take her to the ER to deal with it. You know, sometimes you pass them, it's kind of intermittent pain. This was just really deep, excruciating pain. Went to the ER here in town and just happened to notice that there was a family with like a 20-something that was experiencing a sickle cell anemia attack spell. Sickle cell crisis is the term. Okay. And it was hurting me watching that person, that young lady, deal with that in enormous pain. 
I don't know exactly physically what happens, but it was clear that it was a physical problem for. And this is, of course, one of those nights where the ER slammed, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and finally, I got up to go find somebody for help. It was ridiculous. And I was, of course, concerned about my wife. I was concerned about that young lady. She needs help now. Nobody should have to sit there in a hospital and endure that kind of pain. Surely there's something. And I went down the hall and found somebody, honestly. And I was not met with a, <laughs> with a very friendly reception. I, you know, and you, you're shaking your head. You're familiar with this. Oh, yeah. So, and that, that was frustrating. And you know, I don't think I've ever had a good experience in an ER. Yeah, and I, I don't want to throw them all under the bus here. Don't get me wrong there. But I, I got a, real, a really flippant, arrogant response, and it made me mad. And this is when I was still in business. So it was five years ago, six more than five years ago. And this particular institution was one of my big customers. And not only that, I knew folks that ran the place. They had their phone numbers. And I didn't want to do this, but I finally said, look, do I need to call one of these people and say, we got a problem here? Because I'll do it. I don't care. I know these people well enough. They said, just go sit down. We'll come take care of it. Sure enough, five minutes later, we came around. And they called my wife's name like, okay, we've been here three hours. And just because I took a walk, we're getting some attention. Shouldn't be like that. And and I also said, well, we got to help this young lady over here. She's got a problem. And they finally did go go back. But I, it just made me think about that because she was experiencing the sickle cell crisis, I guess is the technical term. But, man, watching somebody just, you know, mire in pain like that, sitting in an uncomfortable chair in an ER, you've got a human cell in your body, you feel some emotion about that, and I did. Of course I was worried about my wife. She was in brutal pain, too. We got her settled and taken care of and stabilized, but, you know, I know they can't say anything, but I I had to go back and say, you know, how's the young lady, and they really couldn't say, unfortunately, and I get that, but it uh, bothered me. But the only point is, what if this $2.5 million therapy resolves that problem? Because when it comes right, it's random, the sickle cell attacks, the crises. It's not like it's, I feel it coming. I think it's kind of random, and, and it's, it's a fast onset. And I wonder how many end up in the ER like that to, to deal with that situation. So if, if this therapy addresses that problem and corrects it, well, then maybe that avoids these um, you know, one o'clock in the morning, as this case, as was the case here, visit to the ER, uh, and and of course all the other downstream health problems associated with that, and that that's worth analyzing. But point is, we're inventing new care; it costs money. Who's going to be God and say you can't have it? That's the issue, because you can't pay for it. For example. That's the fundamental challenge that we deal with as a society, in my view. We're stepping aside for a break. Half an hour left, and then it's Johnny Polis, Major of the Mississippi Highway Patrol, giving us an update on the 1034 Project. Please stay with us. 
Is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. back everyone it's middays the markets ain't looking real hot today concerns about that sticky inflation and the price of oil is weighing on investors minds fearing that that will continue to drive inflation and cause problems for the uh, private sector Making money. By the way, this this issue comes up all the time about being so-called energy independent. And I know the average person out there thinks, well, pretty much thinks of that in the context of oil. When you say rhino, I don't think they think about all forms of energy, and there are multiple. I think most people think what they use the most of, which is going to the gas tank, a uh, gas pump, putting in your tank, and. The fact is, we consume just under 20 million, about 19 and change million barrels a day. We produce 12. We've always imported oil. In fact, we're producing, this is crazy, even with the terrible Biden administration policies, we're producing more now than we ever have in our history per day. Under Trump, it never got above 12. But the difference was, Trump didn't say, hey, we're going to put you out of business. And so you've had oil and gas companies that were investing in future production and exploration. You also didn't have um, an administration that honestly is a laughing stock to the rest of the world, especially in including those who produce oil. Oil is a global commodity in OPEC, Saudi Arabia, etc., they're bound and determined to get the price up because we silly Americans keep consuming it no matter what, and they know that, and they laugh about it all the way to the bank. It's, what, 87 bucks today, I think. I say it's going to 100 and I think you got another $0.40 cents or so that's going to be tacked on to the per-gallon price that you're currently paying, and that's going to wreak havoc on the country. On the ceasefire text line, G L H E R is single. That's Greenwood LaFleur, by the way. Is single physician coverage now? This is a disaster in the making because of the amount of trauma and heart disease in the Delta. I've worked. I guess that's law enforcement, right, uh, Rhino? Ellie, I've worked Ellie here for thirty years. I know what happens. Everybody with private insurance going to Jackson and, and elsewhere. I've heard the same. Uh, those who have the ability to travel, and uh, uh, both financially and have the assets to travel in, you do see that a lot, no doubt, if they can wait. You know, sometimes these situations are so critical, time is of the essence, especially with a stroke, as you know, and uh, that's a problem. 
But this is, again, an issue with our population being so widely dispersed. It's, it's a sparse population that's spread across the state. But for what it's worth, the Jackson hospitals are losing money, too. They're upside down. They're not doing well. They're bleeding, as a matter of fact. And their parent companies, they're bleeding. They all are. I thought the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, was going to resolve all the issues with those without health insurance. So what's the deal? That's on the ceasefire text line. Excellent question. Uh, the goal of the Affordable Care Act, which I wrote in opposition to numerous articles and spoke a lot about as well, I, I, the goal of universal insurance coverage is a noble one is a good one. The question is, what's the best way to achieve that? I didn't think the ACA provided the best approach. But to the question, here's what happened. Why we have about 10% of the country still uninsured, and in Mississippi, it's much higher than that, by the way. We exceed the national average in that respect. Here's what happened. There there were... um, Three different components of the law that were expected to get everybody covered. The first was you had a mandate. You had to pay a big old penalty if you didn't have it. And what they were really trying to do was get the young, healthy people to sign up and pay because they don't use very much, but they pay in. And the idea was, well, if we can get all the young, healthy people insured and paying in, whether mainly on private coverage, honestly, let's just stop, stay with that. Well, that means that the insurers would have more revenue, wouldn't necessarily have more expense because they don't use, they don't need as much care to cover the sick people. The idea was, you young, healthy people pay in to pay for the sick people, older people that consume most of the health care. So you put the burden on the people that have the least financial stability. That's right. But, as you guys know, the Supreme Court said, no, they upheld the mandate, okay, but it then got watered down, and then Trump was able to eliminate it. So that that happened. The other thing was expanding Medicaid, because you still had a coverage group, that being the the so-called working poor, that's what Medicaid would cover, those with an income, um, but not enough to afford insurance, and working where their employers don't provide it, etc. Well, then the Supreme Court said that this was a part of the ruling that upheld the mandate that doesn't get discussed a lot, which is the ruling also stated that states don't have to expand Medicaid to stay in traditional Medicaid. That's why Mississippi and nine other states have not expanded. became optional, if you will. But the original law was, you don't have a choice. Supreme Court said, you can't do that, Congress. Um, that, a lot of conservatives, if you remember, were mad because they upheld the mandate. But they missed out on that kind of nugget which was, you don't have to expand Medicaid. The other thing the, the Supreme Court said is, you can't force the states to create these exchanges and operate them on their on their own accord. And all the states that had spent already a bunch of money building those, essentially, IT systems, that's what it, really what it was, um, 
uh, to filter all the insurance carriers that were offering subsidized coverage on these so-called marketplaces. When they said that, they said, okay, federal government, you're going to have to do that. That's the case in Mississippi. It, our exchange is actually operated by the federal government. I think it was Oregon that had spent like $400 bucks on the covered Oregon site that never got off the ground, never went into production. And when the Supreme Court ruling came out, they said, okay, we're, we're done with that. And they just tanked $400 bucks. Um, but the idea there was we're going to give subsidized subsidies to all those who can't get so-called affordable insurance, and that's how they're going to get it. And if they don't, we're going to fine them with a penalty. So so stay with me here. You had Medicaid expansion to get that group. You had the subsidized coverage and the exchanges to get that group. And you had the mandate said, if you don't, we're going to, you're going to have to pay. And that's going to cost you more than the insurance would. And all that fell apart, essentially. That's why we still have 10% of the country uninsured. Not to get off the subject, but how can you send a billion dollars to Ukraine when you had a devastating fire in Hawaii and a hurricane ravaged Florida and going to state that the funds for FEMA are about depleted for the year? That's dumb. Keith and Jay says, well, we went through this yesterday. I agree. Why do we even care about that? There's, we have unlimited supply of money. It's called a printing press. It's not an either or. Never should it be. Well, if we send it to Ukraine. We can't send it to Florida. Sure they can that's Which is why I've started laughing when people try to say, well, the blue states subsidize the red states. That's only the case if you're working with a finite amount of money. Very true. Um, and all that's really, all that really is is just a statement about the fact that they send more taxes. But taxes are irrelevant. Revenue, honestly, in the federal government's irrelevant. That doesn't factor into discussions and decisions about spending. It's not like you run your household. I got X dollars coming in. I can only have X dollars going out. I, I can't just go print more to handle the shortfall. Uh, not that easy, Thomas. I had a business for 40 years. I would have gone broke. This is Tim from Tupelo. I, I'm, I'm simply making the point that you can't find me another industry that is compelled to provide services for free. You can't find me another one. And uh, my friend, the legislator, sending me texts, and if he's listening, I would I would put that same question to him. Find me an industry that can survive giving away services. Some you can, sure. I mean, I, I think most good businesses have a certain amount of their services or they do it through charity. That's totally separate. I mean, people come in the door and they say, hey, look, I need help, but I can't pay you. In that industry, they say, come on in. We're going to take care of you. But in most, they say, well, get out of here. You're taking up space. We're coming right back. Don't forget, we got Major Johnny Paulus joining us at 12.05. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show. On Super Talk Mississippi.
We are back. Do the 9 million illegals in this country that are receiving free health care not put a burden on the health care industry as a whole? Well, all free care puts a burden on the industry as a whole, and illegals are certainly a part of that. A lot of illegals actually have gainful employment and have insurance as well. So you can't assume that they all are uh, consuming services. But um, And many of them also are on Medicaid. Even though they're illegal, they're eligible for that. So that that is a problem in that it costs the federal taxpayers money, but they're at least getting some degree of reimbursement uh, to the institutions. But that still doesn't account for the under-reimbursement of Medicare and Medicaid and uninsured. Um, certainly that illegals that are, don't have insurance, that's a problem. But Medicare reimburses below cost. Medicaid reimburses lower than Medicare. It's just greater than zero. I mean, that's the way you have to look at it. But it's designed that way. And that's why hospitals, if you you go look at hospitals that are producing a positive cash flow, you'll find that that's because the vast majority of their services are reimbursed by commercial carriers or directly by the patient. If they have a large component reimbursed by Medicare and Medicaid, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't. I mean, you could apply that same model to any business in any industry, and it just doesn't work. I, I, I'll tell you that um, rule of thumb, for example, in the legal industry, in the um Accounting, public accounting industry, rule of thumb, has been for 50 years, as far as I can remember, that your billing rate should equal at least 3x the provider's pay, whomever the uh, an accounting firm, the accountants pay, because they bill by the hour. So the rate per hour, if, if you pay them... For argument's sake, twenty dollars. You need to bill them for sixty. Now, no CPAs are working for twenty dollars. They're coming right out of school, making seventy and eighty these days, grand a year. That's thirty-five to forty bucks an hour. So you can do the math there. That that means you got to get one hundred twenty to one hundred fifty bucks an hour for the entry level guys. That's the rule of thumb to make ends meet, to make a reasonable profit. So imagine if you back that down when you got certain clients, instead of it being 3x, it's 1.5x. Or even worse, to equate it to Medicare or Medicaid, it's 0.7x. Doesn't work. That's the fundamental problem. You cut admin costs all day long. But if you got to pay somebody $100 and you're billing their time for 70 it doesn't work. I challenge anybody to provide me a financial statement that shows how that's viable economically. So that's, that's the problem. And I'm not sitting here saying i got all the answers, and I'm not saying that Medicaid is one of them, or, or the solution, I should say, Medicaid expansion. No, I don't believe that whatsoever. 
What I'd like to see is more economic growth in our state so that more of our population is able to work in private sector entities that are thriving and offer group coverage, employer-based group club coverage, and pay at least some of that on behalf of their employee, which they have to do by law, by the way, if they're over 50 employees. If they don't, they got to pay a penalty. That's part. That was the other way, by the way. I forgot about that, that the Affordable Care Act would achieve universal coverage. Employers over 50, you got to provide affordable coverage. Problem in Mississippi is we got a lot of employers under 50, so they're they're not ensnared in that provision. That's what the exchanges are de- designed for. You go to the exchanges and buy individual coverage with a subsidy. Problem there is the carriers that sell in the exchanges don't have very expansive networks. Remember we had somebody on the text line, Rhino, not so long ago that said they had coverage in the exchange and they had some sort of issue and they went to the they went to a, a clinic that they were told they needed to go to. It was in the Tupelo area. They traveled somewhere. Or maybe they went locally and then they traveled. But nonetheless, they were told it's going to be 600 bucks for this. And they said, can't afford that. And just walked away. And I got worried because it sounded to me like they needed some medical treatment, some medical care to address that issue. It's just a lot of complicated moving parts. Appreciate all the engagement on it as well and all we're trying to do is inform and uh, allow people to just understand the issue better i certainly don't have all the answers i'm not suggesting that we are stepping aside for a break it's time for fox news and super talk news major johnny paulus with the highway patrol is next get ready get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Middays live from the Element Well Studio, the afternoon portion of the program on this hump day. And joining us now is Major Johnny Paulus from the Mississippi Highway Patrol. Major, good to see you in the uh, studio. Good to see you, Gerard. It's great to be back in the Super Talk Studio. Yes, sir. So uh, you were reassigned, mm-hmm. shall we say, mm-hmm. to this 1034 project, something that uh, I think you and I were talking about before you uh, assume this role. And it was just a a general question I had. I think we were discussing uh, a rundown of activity over a busy weekend and talking about uh, some crashes that Mm -hmm. the troopers were working. And I just asked a question, you know, when they come up on this and they they see these horrific scenes, you can't unsee that. You can't just forget about it. You know, and just general concern about how do they just get through that and continue to function and, and thrive, knowing it's probably going to happen again, honestly. That's correct. And I, I think that conversation that we had uh, involved a lot of insight on your part, knowing what law enforcement agencies you know, are subjected to every day with the men and women that go out and serve the public. Yeah. And, and I can tell you firsthand now, we've, we've invested in this program. Uh, we're, we're next month will be two years 
from the time we started. Um, and in today's society, you have to invest in your officers. So you have to invest in their well-being and not only the officers, but their families as well. And that is the goal of the 1034 project. So was this something that was started elsewhere and it's kind of permeating nationally? Is that how this is working? Yes, and there are many agencies across the country that have had wellness programs in place a long time. It's very complicated. Uh, the biggest hurdle that we have is there's a stigma associated with mental wellness. When you talk about mental wellness with a law enforcement officer, especially the, the older generation, uh, and, and, and I'm one of those, you know, the way I was raised and everything, yeah. it's something that you're just not comfortable in talking to, but because let's face it, we're law enforcement officers. We yeah. have to we have to suck it up. We have to deal with those things on a daily basis. So um, it's the subject itself itself is is tough to bring up to law enforcement officers. But I can tell you what I have seen in the past with the support of Commissioner Tennell and, and Colonel Ginn. Um, we're making great strides, okay. and, and we have to continue on that path again for the future of law enforcement. So is is this changing major how we train uh, individuals to become state troopers? Is this becoming part ingrained as part of the curricula? Yes. And and with that being said, uh, after today, I'm going to meet with Captain Reed Harrington. Uh, he is the MHP training director uh, to establish a schedule okay. in our upcoming in-service training. That, you know, we, tr- we train the troopers yearly, and also we have implemented the wellness program and training into our MHP trooper training class okay. uh, to get to them early for them to understand that, again, we're going to equip you with everything you're going to need to be a law enforcement officer as far as equipment, uh, learning how to drive a vehicle, learning how to shoot, but we're also going to equip you mentally on how to handle the things you're going to be subjected to throughout your career to where you can leave a meaningful and productive life. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, So you've got support, obviously, of leadership in Mm -hmm. in, uh, Mm -hmm. the way of the commissioner uh, and the colonel. Has there been any pushback? A major in the ranks? Um, a little bit, but that's that was expected. You know, again, it goes back to the stigma. But I can tell you a lot of our success, we base that on when we actually intervene. And we have a peer support team that consists of officers. That was the first thing uh, that I felt was necessary based off of chiefs and sheriffs and uh, state leaders across the country. You have to have a peer support team in place. Okay. So we have 75 currently wow. under DPS that are trained in peer support. Okay. And, and and basically what peer support is is to help navigate, help officers navigate, you know, through critical incidents or any personal issues they you know they might be experiencing in their life. Um, so for the success part of it, when you have a um, a law enforcement officer that's pretty hard, doesn't really want to talk, but when we do have those conversations and they realize the resources that we can provide and hey a lot of us have been there and done that yeah and when you've been there and done that you can provide some type of guidance on what to do and what not to do and when you hear the stories or you get the calls from these officers saying hey i just want to tell you how much i appreciate you i appreciate what you know my fellow officer did i appreciate what the agency did for my family 
that's when you know you're being successful. Okay. How how much, if if any, major of of this training and uh, and and just the the uh, I guess the therapy and mm-hmm. and the assistance, how much of that is has been lifted from the military? Is it is there a lot of similarities? So there? we've had to learn a lot from the military uh, when it comes to to PTSD. Okay. And, and keep in mind, we have a lot of military personnel that are yeah. are sworn law enforcement sure. officers. So they're they're taking those experiences overseas if they were in combat, they still have that and then you put on top of that being a law enforcement officer and what you're subjected to on a daily basis. Um so to answer your question, yes. Okay. It's a different type of mindset. Uh I've had military professionals tell me we train uh, you know, when you're going through boot camp, you you're training for they might be one time in your military career you're subjected to battle. Makes sense. Law enforcement can be a daily yeah, battle, constant. So, uh, of course, we were deeply saddened at the news of this tragic accident with um, Trooper Mike Griffin, mm-hmm. Sergeant Griffin, and and so. I just wondered, would the Highway Patrol provide, or through this program, provide any sort of support to his family? It's already it's already in place. Okay. Uh, the, the colonel and the commissioner made numerous phone calls right after that happening. Keep in mind, we also we had a situation with the SWAT call out yeah. in Grenada, so it's it, it's been a tough weekend. But once those calls go out and we're made aware of these type of, of these type of incidents, the peer support team is automatically activated, okay. and we have them all over the state. Uh, and in talking about talking about Mike, this is one of the things that puts it right dead in the middle of the radar screen of how important these programs are because you you had you had a gentleman that took an oath in 1987 and was a Marine to serve and protect and here he is doing exactly what he swore to do that day in trying to render aid and and, and he lost his life and there were there were a lot of officers out there hmm. that we have to get to we have to sit down and we have to talk cuz even though you're a law enforcement officer you know we're still human and you're subjected to some pretty traumatic things and when you see a fellow officer that has lost their life, and let's just say it in the line of duty. That is that is very traumatic in itself, and and again, that's when you see the buy-in when these officers and their families see, hey, look, we care. Yeah, and that's the the biggest thing is just show that you care, and again, that is that is one of the major major components of the ten thirty four is to have that peer support where fellow officers come in and they sit down and we try to help them navigate through these tough times. Gotcha. So when when you have an incident like this, especially an incredibly tra- tragic one with um, uh, Sergeant Griffin, how, how does that change the troopers, the, just the community? I mean, is there something kind of immediate in the wake of that that just, I don't know, changes their just attitude at that point? So as far as from a law enforcement uh, perspective, the first thing that hits you is the reality. Yeah. That's how fast it can happen. His his role that day was to again, you know, render assistance to to help someone, and and he lost his life in trying to do that. For a law enforcement officer, 
you know, we we block things out. You know, we, we try not to focus on certain things. But when you have those types of situations, again, it brings the reality into play. What we do as far as the communities, yeah. the communities, and this is another part of the wellness program, that we want to do a better job in, with community relations. We have to do a better job with community relations. Our job as law enforcement officers is to better the perception of law enforcement, right? But we also, we have to have the perception of society. We have to help these officers have a better perception of society to go out and do what they need to do, uh, again, to be that law enforcement officer serving and protecting, but again, for the officer to live a meaningful and productive life. It makes sense. Uh, so before we go here, final question is, would you categorize it as a success? What's happened so far? Absolutely. If you help one. Sure. If you help one, you've been successful. And I can tell you we've helped a lot more than just one. I'm sure. Well, I believe you're perfect for this role, Major. And well, I, I appreciate and I, Dr. Um, I really appreciate you stepping up and applaud um, the colonel and the commissioner for making that change. It's desperately needed within our ranks, and I'm sure we'll be talking about it some more. Yes, Always sir. good to see you, Major. Same here, sir. Thank you, sir. We're coming right back with more in the Element Well Studio. Doing my job. talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Well studio. Always good to see Major Johnny Paulus. I'm glad they implemented that program. It's um, it's desperately needed. I know you got a little personal exposure to that as well. But, you know, we expect these folks to keep us safe and uh, deal with criminals, crazy criminal behavior, many of whom would like nothing better than, honestly, to take them out. They're targets. And and they come upon, especially our state troopers, come upon these, these crashes. Those are horrific scenes. You know, just because you put that uniform on, you don't lose your human makeup. You, you still, and they're pretty skilled at concealing that, but he, he made a great analogy. Did the major uh, off off the air here a second ago? He said it's kind of like pushing the sleds in football. You know, offensive linemen in particular that that practice a lot pushing the sled and they keep adding weight to it. Finally, you just get to a point where you add so much weight you can't push it anymore, and it, you just got we as humans have don't have endless capacity to deal with those kinds of situations. You you get to a threshold and it's. Who knows at that point? So, But I appreciate um, the major's involvement in that. So we've been talking about 
health care. Uh, today, today health care, <laughs> yesterday PERS. And again, um, somebody said on the ceasefire tax line, I don't, I don't know that I necessarily agree with this, says, uh, G.G., more Republicans are agreeing with you regarding expansion. We all know we can afford it. We all know our people need it and our economy will benefit from it. Politicians need to listen to the people. I want to make it clear, I, I'm not doing a promotion here for Medicaid expansion. I'm simply saying that there's a problem. And to ignore it and say there's not a problem, well, that's not true either. But it's also, I think as you said, it's not true to say, oh, just bring Medicaid expansion in, which is what Brandon Presley's saying, and change the person at the top of Medicaid. Problem solved. No, yeah, that's not true either. The, the big elephant in the room is if you are someone who is just waltzing into an ER, knowing good and well you can't afford it and you're not going to pay a dime, what incentive do you have to jump through the hoops of getting signed up for a government program? I, I'll be honest with you. Not only do I agree with you on that that uh, well-constructed point, Rhino, I think one of the biggest problems we'd have if we expanded Medicaid is getting people to sign up for it, period. Meaning they – so let's be clear. Signing up for Medicaid doesn't mean they start sending you money to buy insurance. doesn't work that way. In fact, it doesn't cost a dime – until you go see a doctor. You receive some services that are reimbursable under Medicaid. But look at it this way. You, you go you On one side, you go to the ER without a dollar to your name or in your pocket, knowing you're going to be serviced. Yep. Or you can go to Medicaid, get signed up, and then when you show up, you got to pay $3, $10 for you inpatient. Got copay, yeah. Right, little copay. Yeah, I, so I agree. So if you already can't afford it to the point where you're willing to steal services from someone, why on earth would you spend any money at all to get the same service? I, I Especially agree. when you add the hoops of jumping through to get it. It's estimated that there are some 50,000 people in the state of Mississippi right now under traditional Medicaid who are eligible and they're not enrolled because they don't even know it exists. And it's not like there are giant billboards out there on the road that say, hey, go sign up for Medicaid. It's, so there's nothing promoting that. And and I would also just point out that while I know in general it it's construed as welfare, and I'm not, I'm not uh, disagreeing with that, but it's not like TANF money. Here's a check. It's not like... Um, other forms of welfare that truly are transfer payments to the individual. This is money that goes to the provider to cover the services, uh, to reimburse the provider. So it's not like they're getting rich on – people aren't getting rich because they're enrolled in Medicaid. They don't get any of that. They just get coverage when they go to the doctor. And like you said – most of them go no matter what and get the service anyhow. Uh, has has it gotten out of control beyond just safety net intent? Yeah, I think that's true, especially when you consider that uh, during COVID, when you couldn't disenroll any anyone, we got up to 90 million Americans on Medicaid, 90 million. There ain't but 330 in the country. On Medicaid, and it's expected that once disenrollment is complete, which I believe 
is supposed to occur by the end of this month, that we'll be down to about 70, 70 million, of which nearly half are children. So, and just to clarify that, a child can qualify, but the parents likely do not, because that's what they don't qualify because they're not blind, they're not disabled, they're not indigent elderly, and they're not pregnant. So most children on Medicaid live in households where the parents don't have any insurance, but the kids do. But, of course, kids don't get sick like adults do. So they don't consume a lot of the expense. They just happen to make up most of the enrollees as far as the coverage group is concerned. Pull up the one for South Central Regional Center and Laurel talking about financial statements. This is Michael and Laurel. I, I will, Michael. Uh, I haven't. That was uh, – many of these hospitals when I was in the IT business were uh, were clients of mine. That's one of them. South Central Regional was a was a great client. So what, what we did in these big hospitals was all the networking, those fairly complex networks when you got that many users spread, spread across campuses and so forth and – remote users, and then uh, security, cybersecurity, to protect all that stuff, the servers, storage, virtualization platforms that hosted all the EHR and other software tools that they use. Um, UMC, their telepresence solution, was uh, something we collaborated on with uh, the software folks that made the clinical piece of that. We did all the underlying infrastructure and, and, uh, and networking, video, et cetera. Uh, for that, and then uh, some of the some of the hospitals have contact centers where you can call and you got like a pool of people who respond to phone calls. And uh, we did all the contact center implementation, but uh, gosh, we had UAB for example in Birmingham, it's a huge client virus. Infirmary Health in Mobile, which is the largest hospital in Alabama, gigantic, was a long time. We also hosted. Uh, some of their applications for them in our in our um, our data center, Oshner's in Louisiana, FMOL, the parent company that also acquired uh, St. Dominic's clients as well, Baptist uh, clients. Um, so a bunch of those guys, and they they've got very sophisticated IT, and those EHR systems are brutally expensive as well. I mean, just software. Projects like that are, I mean, they can run a billion dollars, honestly, to implement stuff like that. Big-time deal. It's almost like the health insurance system is a criminal racket, says Brandon from Corinth. Well, I hear you, Brandon, but I will I will uh, share this with you. The top five insurers in the country make less money combined annually than Apple does in a quarter and a half. The top, stay with me on that, the top five insurers' net profit amounts to about $45 billion annually. Apple makes $25 billion a quarter. Think about that. So, is anybody ever accused Apple of being a racket? <laughs> I've never seen that. 
Um, I mean, they've been accused of some things. Yeah, they have. Uh, using slave labor, I guess, right, in China is probably one of the biggest ones. But so, just to, so you'll know, Brandon, by law, the insurance industry, and that's in accordance with the Affordable Care Act, 80% of their revenue has to be paid out in claims. The 80-20, they, they call it the medical loss ratio. And... Uh, if they don't, they have to rebate money to their subscribers. And since the Affordable Care Act, I'll look it up in a minute, was implemented, billions have been rebated, some more than others. Uh, I want to say Anthem in California is rebated more than any other. But, yeah, so their their profit literally is limited by the federal government. I think it's a bad idea, honestly. We're coming right back. Half an hour left in on middays. Okay, is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbons on Super Talk Mississippi. in the Element Well studio, so best I could find, all the financial reports for South Central Regional are only the expense portion. I went through several of them while we were on the break there, but I did uh, find a site that aggregates, there's there's several actually, that aggregate um, hospital financial statements. And uh, South Central Regional, which is, by the way, based in Laurel, according to the latest data I'm looking at from one of these sites. And this is, by the by the way, for the year ended 2012-31-21. That means the 22 audit. It's probably still ongoing. But uh, they generated a uh, pretty big top line, $404 million of patient revenue. They actually were cash flow positive. They uh, they made ten million bucks. So, but this is what I don't understand. They're showing nearly thirteen million of non-patient revenue. I'm not sure what that is in a hospital. Non-patient revenue could be some sort of investment. They most of them do have accumulated assets that they invest, but that's a lot. They have a really popular cafeteria. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's the flower shop, huh? the gift shop. $13 million. I don't know how you add up cafeteria and flower shop to $13 million, but no, surely I agree. it's in there somewhere. I don't, yeah, I agree. But, uh, so when you add the patient and the non-patient, $417 million with a net income of uh, $10 million, which is a paltry 2.6%. But it's better than losing money. Um, I can't find any information with respect to their their revenue mix because I, I would be shocked to find that they had a huge component of their revenue-generated patient services through Medicare and Medicaid to produce a positive cash flow. But I did look at their 
their detailed expenses and and once again they're in line with all the others as as far as their their overhead is concerned contractual services non-cash expenses such as depreciation and amortization so all that seems to be in line would you say medicare medicaid is what's killing rural hospitals says nick in oxford um I, I'd say uninsured, un, unreimbursed care, and under-reimbursed care are the two primary reasons that full-service hospitals are struggling. Now, we should point out the ambulatory service operations are all doing great. And one of the things that's happened is that you've seen an increase in the build-out of ambulatory service operations because so much medical technology has advanced so much that a lot of these procedures can be performed on an outpatient basis. We don't have that many anymore that need long hospital stays that have these morbid-type surgeries where they just cut you open and you ain't going anywhere for a week or so. Still have some of that, but not to the extent we did in the old days where pretty much any time they had to go inside your body, it was that kind of event. So an example would be like the orthopedic facilities. Unbelievable here in town in central Mississippi, a couple of big operations and more being built. And then you've got, say, the GI, for example, facilities. Uh, again, because of how much that science has advanced. And those are all doing well. Those are profitable. Part of the problem and challenge for the the standard full care, acute care hospitals is that they've lost a lot of that business, that outpatient-type, more lucrative business. And so they're... They're left, honestly, not trying to be crass about it, but with the sicker people who require longer stays and more expensive to take care of them and have lower reimbursement. So you just add all that up, and it's a problem for hospitals. But I I do want to point that out, the ambulatory. And this is why private equity firms across the country are gobbling up these ambulatory service organizations or their funding expansion into them. Then you get the CON laws that get in in the way of that as well because those guys can they're they're treated a little different than a hospital that wants to go say open up ambulatory which is why you've seen lots of hospitals now get into the clinic business the primary care business they're trying to create a pipeline for the patients all under one umbrella for the revenue aspect of that let the hospitals close the ERs at 5 p.m. That's interesting. So on the ceasefire tax line, how would you handle, I don't know, a car wreck that happens after 5? Or my wife that had a brutal kidney stone attack 11 o'clock at night, as an example. I mean, you can go down the list. There, I, I wish that... Uh, Illness and sickness and accidents only happen during a certain time of the day, but but they don't. So that would be a problem. 
I think. I don't know that that would work. Had a store manager in Memphis yesterday. This is Lisa in Clara, Mississippi. Said, we, the United States, should do like Canada and have free health care. I did tell him he had lost his mind. Well, that's that's a ruse. It's not free. Um, and the Canadian fully socialized system is is terrible and produces bad outcomes and has lots of people that wait around a long time, but that's a completely different implementation. To the point where they're offering assisted suicide for terminal patients. Totally do, in uh, in Canada. And they know it's so bad that they try to hide it from outsiders, because if you're not a Canadian citizen and you go to a Canadian hospital, you go to the front of the line. Yeah, it's true. Oxford, Mississippi Baptist ER is hands down the best. Hands down, says Brad from Pontotoc. I've I've heard that as well. I've also looked into that that uh, institution, Brad. Uh, vast majority of their patient care reimbursed by commercial providers. They are they do operate in the black. They produce positive cash flow. Um, as a result, don't have a big revenue mix of Medicaid and uh, Medicare. Uh, let's see here. Asking for my wife. If you had 80K in a 401K and found yourself changing jobs, would you roll over into a new 401K or into a Roth, says Rhett and Ridgeland. Rhett, we, we need more. I, I don't want to give investment advice like that. I'm not licensed to do so, but you need a lot more information, honestly, to, to make that call. The difference between a standard 401K and a, a Roth is that standard 401k, your contributions are pre-taxed, but your withdrawals are tax subject to tax. And a Roth's just the opposite. Your contributions are not pre-tax, but your withdrawals are. So it's uh, usually it, you want to do that if you feel like that you're going to really do well with the investment um, of your money such that, yeah, I, I want the income and the withdrawals to be tax-free. You think you're going to put it away and do really, really well. Uh, and, and it just depends on your employer as well, what kind of options they offer. Something I got here earlier, I'm looking for it from Ben in Madison. It may have scrolled by. I'll see if I can find it. Uh, yep, says, I'm happy there are way smarter people than me who are trying to address health care issues we face as a state. Really, it's as a nation, too. And he also points out something we said earlier, that Presley said he'll expand Medicaid on day one. Right. He can't do that. He's not going to do that. He can't do that if even if he were elected. So I agree with you, Ben. I'd, there are probably, unfortunately, though, a lot of voters out there that think he can, that think the governor can just sign a document, say, okay, we expanded Medicaid. Right. Hmm. Uh, let's see here. C.J. from Madison, I know you're involved locally. Is there any talk of a water park or Dave and Buster's or main event being built in central Mississippi? I haven't heard anything. I know about the Top Golf. Looks like the shovels are going into the ground next month, next month, I believe. But I haven't seen anything, C.J., on that. Yeah, he said something for kids to do, basically. Lots of food places being built, I've noticed. Yeah. One thing I think is part of the problem, this is on the ceasefire text line, is people who get service but make no effort to pay, what happened to integrity? That's a good question. I agree with you. There's 
As Rhino said, there's a lot of folks that say, why do I want to sign up for Medicaid? All that, that doesn't help me. I still get the same service. It only helps the person giving the service. That's the point. Doesn't help, really, doesn't really make a difference to a lot of the people receiving the service. They get it no matter what. It's just a matter of whether or not the people delivering it are getting paid for it. That's what it, essentially that would do. But we're coming back with the final segment on the middays today. We got tickets to give away to trains. Stay with us. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show! On Super Talk, Mississippi. We are back. Final segment, and the Rhinos got some tickets to give away. Oh, yeah, we got one last chance for you. The Grammy Award-winning and platinum-selling band Train are going to be at the Brandon Amphitheater in Brandon tomorrow night. Tickets for the show are obviously on sale at the Brandon Amphitheater box office, or you can get them last minute at Ticketmaster.com. But here is your last chance to win a pair of tickets for free to see Train. All you got to do, be the 17th person. The text into the C Spire text line, that number is 601-879-4395. Be the 17th person to text in the word SOUL, and you'll win two tickets to see Train tomorrow night at the Brandon Amphitheater in Brandon. Got it. All right, also tomorrow in a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, you'll hear an interview with musician and actor Cam Cole, who has appeared several times on the hit series Ted Lasso. In the Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar is presented by Superior Catfish. Remember, there's catfish. Then there is Superior Catfish. Ask for it by name at your favorite store or restaurant. Go to Super Superior, pardon me, SuperiorCatfish.com for more info. Another uh, person on the text line said, Oxford Baptist is great. So that's two people. I've heard the same, and here's what I'll, I guess, just share thought, an observation about that. Why is that particular institution thriving? Why does it have a good reputation? And this may not be received very well because it's an affluent area. If you look at the vast majority of the patients, they're somewhat affluent. And there is definitely a correlation between affluence and health. And and lifestyle doesn't mean you don't get sick, but in general, that's that's part of the problem. Is that folks on the lower end of the income scale tend to leave less healthy lifestyles? One of the problems is the food that they can afford. You don't find a lot of the healthier food in the poorer areas, the more impoverished areas. In fact, what you see is lots of the food is not good for you, and it's cheap. It's one of the reasons. And so you've got affluence. You've got folks that have private coverage. 
they're in better health, all that adds up to better outcomes, better service quality, and uh, generated generation of positive cash flow. It, it's not one-to-one exact. I'm not suggesting that. But in general, those are big factors in that in that uh, situation. Uh, somebody did ask about the uh, – we're talking about earlier, I should say, the reimbursement, the, uh, the rebates, I should say. And uh, when, when an insurer um, does not comply with the 80-20 medical loss ratio, so it's called, it's actually called a medical loss ratio rebate, that went into effect in 2012. And I, I did look that up on the break. $14 billion in rebates have been issued since it went into effect. Last year was $1.1 billion. That's just checks from insurers back to their subscribers because they didn't comply with the medical loss ratio, which says that 80% of the money they take in in premiums has to be paid out. In other words, their profit's regulated. And that's the way that works. But I did want to pass that on. I knew it was billions. I just didn't know how many. Are we ever going to have a state lottery, not the match five? Not sure what you mean by that, Tim and McGee. We do have several drawdown games. That's what that is. So what does he mean by that? I'm not sure. And uh, I think I got a report this morning. Somebody won like 98 grand in one of the games uh, in the match five jackpot. $98,800. That was, uh, let's see, the ticket was purchased at Bridges Quickie Number 1 in Florence. There you go. So we've got uh, the Cash 3, Cash 4, Mississippi Match 5. Those are all drawdown games. It's really the only styles we have. you got drawdown and, scratch, and scratch-offs. And then we got the multi-state drawdown game, Powerball, Mega Millions. That's really all that's available. Uh, let's see. All the gunshot victims at night, I guess they're just out of luck if we close the hospital at 5. Uh, Louisiana has a state lotto that is a pick 6. It starts out at 500 k and increases. Well, that's just a different style game from our match 5, cash 4. It's just a, a bigger deal. Haven't heard any suggestions of that. Not sure how sellable that would be we have plenty and increases by like 50k yeah i mean it's the same thing with the match five it escalates if there's not any winners we're out of here today we appreciate you so much for joining us back with you tomorrow stay safe and god bless everyone a super talk mississippi media production